Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. In April 1953, an RAF plane landed in Oxfordshire carrying Britons who'd been captured in the Korean War and held as prisoners of war in North Korea. One of those getting off the plane to a hero's welcome was George Blake. He'd already led a remarkable life. As born in Holland, he'd served in the Dutch resistance during the early part of World War II and then made a secret journey across occupied Europe to Spain and eventually reaching Britain, where he joined MI6. But when Blake climbed off that plane in 1953 to return to life in England and his job, the most remarkable part of his life was only just beginning. In captivity in Korea, he had offered his services to the KGB. So he was now both a Russian spy as well as being a British intelligence officer. George Blake, arguably the most significant traitor in the history of British intelligence, died in Moscow on Boxing Day last year. To tell us more about Blake's amazing story, I'm delighted to be joined today by Simon Cooper, Financial Times columnist and author who met Blake in 2012 and who's published a fascinating book about him called The Happy Traitor. Simon, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Simon, maybe we could just dive straight in and perhaps you could tell us how it came to be that that you got to meet George Blake in 2012. Well, it really goes back to 1999. I grew up in the Netherlands like Blake, and I was visiting a friend in Amsterdam, and I was reading a magazine article about this man, George Blake, who was had had this fascinating life from the Dutch resistance to captivity in Korea, working for the Secret Intelligence Service, and then going over to the KGB. And here he was, still alive in Moscow, and he'd given an interview to a Dutch journalist. And I thought, wow, you know, I could get to this man too. I'd love to interview him. And so that really set me on the path. I later met a Dutchman in Moscow called Dirk Sauer, who turned out to be friendly with Blake. And when I visited Moscow in 2012, Dirk arranged for you know me to speak to Blake. Blake was suspicious. He wanted to interview me first. So he called me on my cell phone. And I spoke to him while I was um, touring a cemetery in Moscow, looking for the graves of Chekhov and Khrushchev. And, you know, he interviewed me in Dutch and we agreed I'd write an article for a Dutch newspaper. So I went to see him and spent about three hours with him and walked out thinking that was the most interesting interview that I've ever done. Really, it should be more than an article. And uh, a few years later, I decided to turn it into a book. You've mentioned there that you were able to interview him in Dutch, and, and obviously that, that was a sort of bit of shared heritage that you had. So could you explain to, to the listeners, how is it that this man who had grown up in the Netherlands ended up being an officer of the British Secret Intelligence Service? Well, Blake was born as George Bihar in Rotterdam in 1922. His mother was a fairly posh Protestant Rotterdamer, and his father was a kind of secret Jew from Constantinople. He didn't tell anyone in Rotterdam he was Jewish. He had fought in World War One in the French Foreign Legion and then in the British Army. He had been decorated, had been uh, wounded in a gas attack. And he presented himself in Rotterdam as an Englishman. And Blake was born British with a British passport. And on the way to the registry office, the father, in a fit of patriotism, because it was Armistice Day 1922, decided to name him George after the king. So he's born a British citizen, but in Rotterdam with parents, neither of whom is really British. The next chapter of his life takes him to Britain 
and MI6 uh, during World War II. So how did that stage occur? When World War II breaks out, he's in Rotterdam at the end of his school holiday in 1939, and it's decided he should stay with his family there. The Germans invade, they bomb Rotterdam. He experiences the bombardment of Rotterdam, you know, hiding under the kitchen table with a pan over his head. Then he joins the Dutch resistance. He's very anti-Nazi and he's very pro-British. Since I wrote the book, I've had various letters and emails from people who said that their parents knew Blake or had some family association. And one woman wrote to me that her father was Blake's neighbor as teenagers in the Eastern Netherlands, 1940, 1941. And this man left a memoir in which he said that every morning and evening, Blake would iron and then raise a small Union Jack in his bedroom (laughs) while singing with the Queen. So he's very committed to the British anti-Nazi cause. And he joins the resistance, is a courier for two years, bringing around documents and underground newspapers. But he feels this is not the big time. I really want to be a big time spy. So very early, even in his late teens, he's becoming used to the underground life, life of deception. And he decides he wants to work for the Secret Intelligence Service, which he sees as the kind of secret dynamo behind world affairs, this organization that runs the world. And amazingly, he manages to escape through Belgium, occupied Belgium, France, into Spain, gets a boat to England, and pretty soon afterwards is indeed recruited by SIS to join their Dutch section, 1942-43 this is. So Blake is now in Britain, this country that he sort of had an association with but but had never really been part of. And as as his life continues, he he gets through World War II, and then he ends up in Korea and, and becomes a prisoner. And that is perhaps the key transitional moment in his story. Can you sort of tell us a bit about that and how that led him on his path to offer his services to the KGB? Well, soon after the war, 1947, SIS sends him to Cambridge for a year to learn the new language of espionage, which is Russian, because obviously the focus is now the Soviet enemy. And so Blake, you know, studies Russian in Cambridge, falls in love with the language, with Orthodox religion as well, because he's a He's a very religious man. He's grown up a devout Calvinist. And then, you know, he should really have been sent to some kind of place where Russian could have been used. Instead, they send him to Korea and they say, well, you're only 450 miles from Vladivostok. So start (laughs) recruiting an agents network there. But there's obviously no links at all between South Korea and Vladivostok and not even any trade links. There's no way he can get there. So that, that doesn't work out. But for what it's worth, um, I, I, as a former diplomat, I can say that the Foreign Office has a track record of training people in one language and then sending them to a completely different country. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a noble tradition. I, I was slightly shocked, but if you, if you say so, that this is normal. <laughs> I think it's the first of various establishment missteps in the Blake career. Yeah. Uh, no, but the other thing SAS has said, also incorrect, is they've said, look, there's going to be a Korean War. That, that's, that turns out to be true. But then they say, and when the war breaks out, Britain will remain neutral, and so you can stay there and observe the war for us. Well, June 1950, you know, indeed, the North Koreans invade Seoul, and they pick up Blake and other British diplomats. By this time, however, Britain has gone into the war on the American side as, you know, first instance of the UK acting as an American sidekick in a conflict in which it has no interest. So Blake is very disillusioned. He thought he was serving a great empire, turns out just an American sidekick. And he also, you know, the North Koreans take him 
and many other prisoners on this kind of death march where many American POWs die of starvation and ill treatment. And he sees the terrible bombing by American bomber planes of Korean villages. You know, huge numbers of the Korean population is wiped out. And this adds to his feeling that he's fighting on the wrong side of the Cold War, that actually the communists are in the right. He'd already felt the South Korean regime was kind of evil and fascist. The minister of education had been to Oxford and has a picture of Hitler in his office. So, you know, he starts to think that the the communists in Korea are the right side. So at this point, you know, he and other British and French diplomats and journalists, about eight men, are left in this little farmhouse in the north. The ill treatment stops, but they have nothing to do. And this is when the Soviet embassy in Pyongyang sends them a parcel of books. And, you know, the favorite of everyone is uh, Treasure Island by Stevenson. And they draw lots about who gets to read it first. And they read it to pieces. But there are also two books in Russian, Lenin's State and Revolution, and a Russian translation of Capital, uh, Das Kapital. And the only people in the group who can read Russian are Blake and the British Consul General in Seoul, uh, Vivian Holt. So they sit on a grave mound and they actually read Capital twice in Russian, which is a massive achievement. Yeah. Blake, you know, finds it quite convincing. And he asks Holt, the consul, you know, what do you think? And Holt is a lifelong servant of the British Empire. But he says, well, regressively, I feel the empire is doomed. And I believe that what will replace it is communism. Communism, unfortunately, is the future. And so Blake is quite, he's always very susceptible to uh, British establishment figures telling him what to do. And he's quite persuaded by this. So at this point, you know, the final, it's the final point in his transition to communism. So he's converted. And and as I said in the introduction, in in 1953, they returned home and he resumed his profession as an intelligence officer. And that's when he really started to be a spy for the Russians. Can you tell us about sort of what he was doing and, and how he did it? Well, he was a kind of lunchtime spy. He had been given a, a mini camera by the Russians, which he kept in his back pocket. And you know, it was a very trusting environment, SIS at the time. And at lunchtime, all the spies would go out to lunch at their clubs and the pubs of um, St. James's and the West End. And uh, Blake would stay behind in the office, close the door and photograph every document he could lay his hands on, uh, often names of um, agents of the UK working behind the Iron Curtain. And he would then pass all that on to every couple of weeks. He'd meet his Soviet handlers in a you know deserted suburban train station or in the fog of Belsize Park as his first meeting over eight years or so, just a fantastic amount of information to the Russians. And so Blake was passing these these sort of details, presumably films from the camera. There's also the the story of the Berlin Tunnel. Could could you explain to listeners sort of the significance of that and Blake's role in betraying it to the Russians? Yeah, this is a really important Cold War moment. In the early 50s, say 53, 54, Stalin has died, Khrushchev has taken over. The Western powers don't really understand Khrushchev. You know, is he a warmonger? Is he a peacemaker? Is there going to be a sudden attack on the West, a kind of Hiroshima or Pearl Harbor? Are the Soviets going to invade through uh, East Germany, from East Germany? And so there's great tension because the Cold War is being fought in a kind of fog. And the West has almost no information on Soviet intentions. So they make this plan to drill a tunnel 
under Berlin, from West Berlin into East Berlin, just about a kilometer or so less than that. And then they can tap Soviet phone calls in Berlin and find out what the Soviets are planning. So if there's going to be a Soviet attack, at least they'll have a few hours notice, which can make all the difference, you know, in preserving Western civilization from, you know, the Soviets have a hydrogen bomb by this time. So it's very scary and very dark. And unfortunately, at the meeting where it's decided to build the Berlin Tunnel, the secretary taking the minutes is George Blake. So within a day or two, the Soviets have the minutes and know that the Allies are going to build this tunnel. And then the KGB does something very strange, but also really quite predictable. They decide not to blow the tunnel. They decide to let the Allies build it. And not even the KGB won't even tell the Soviet army, the main user of these phones in Berlin, or even most KGB people in Berlin, that all their phone calls and telegrams are now being tapped by the West. And the reason the KGB lets all this proceed is to protect Blake. You know, Blake is this prize mole. They're incredibly proud that they've got him. And, uh, you know, Burgess and McLean had defected to um, the Soviet Union a few years before, so they don't really have anyone in situ. Philby's been eased out of MI6 under the suspicion of being an agent. So Blake is really the star agent. And the KGB will do anything to protect him. And if it means stiffing their rivals in the Red Army, so much the better. I mean, there's no love lost between the KGB and the Red Army and the Army Spy Service GRU. So for 11 months or so, this tunnel operates, 1954 to 55, and the Western Allies are tapping completely genuine, authentic Soviet phone calls. And it's a case of what do they hear? They hear almost only banalities. Mm. Uh, Soviets, the conversations are about sex huge amount of obscenity they have to the transcribers have to start a special lexicon of obscene Soviet <laughs> words and also um, the soviets bitch about their commanding officers who are all useless but what the western transcribers and and you know listeners don't hear is any troop movements any plans to invade so this is deeply reassuring it's the dog that doesn't bark it turns out through this tunnel that the soviets have no aggressive plans on the west And after 11 months, when the KGB, you know, arranges for the tunnel to be accidentally discovered and it's closed, by this time, uh, the West has been much reassured. And then anyway, just after that, about a week after that, the first U-2 spy plane is shipped from the US to Europe. And they now have U-2 spy planes, which give them a little bit of information about Soviet weapons. He was eventually uncovered. So how did that happen? How did MI6 eventually figure out what he was up to? Well, some British SIS documents had been disappearing and showing up in Eastern Europe or or had been showing up in Eastern Europe. And so there was a list of about 10 MI6 people who were suspected as moles and Blake was on that list. But, you know, really they didn't know who had done it. And there was still this belief that gentlemen can't be spies and um, so they concluded, well, maybe it was just when a safe in Brussels was hacked, the Eastern Europeans got that information. But then in uh, beginning of 1961, this Polish intelligence officer called Michal Goloniewski, figure with great handlebar moustache, uh, defects to the West, bringing along his East German mistress, who knows neither his name nor that he's an intelligence officer. <laughs> Goloniewski is interrogated. Golnievsky later will uh, actually start to claim that he's the last of the Romanovs, you know, descendants of Tsar Nicholas II, goes a bit bonkers. But at this point, 
he gives a lot of information which points the finger of suspicion quite firmly at Blake. Then also an East German double agent who's worked with Blake, um, Horst Eitner, gives some testimony that implicates Blake. And so by now, MI6 know that Blake is the mole. The problem is that Blake is not in Britain. He's in Lebanon uh, following an Arabic course at uh, Mikas, you know, this legendary Arabic school that foreign office people used for decades. And they need to get him back to London to interrogate him, but they also don't want to startle him and make him do a runner. Nicholas Elliott, who's the MI6 station chief there, who will later be involved with uh, the defection of his mate, Kim Philby, from Beirut. Yeah. Elliot goes up to Blake at a theatre and says, oh, by the way, Blake, you're wanted in London. They want to discuss a promotion with you. Very good news, old chap. And Blake, of course, smells a rat. You know, he thinks maybe they want to get me. But he's in a bind because his wife, Gillian, is a very conservative British type. She herself had been an MI6 SIS secretary, and she would not take kindly to him telling her, by the way, Gillian, I'm a Soviet agent. And so he can't very well, you know, grab his wife and two sons and a third on the way, defect into Syria and then onto the Soviet Union because Gillian might not like that. So he thinks, well, you know what, I'll go back to London hope that it's just a promotion and take that risk because he doesn't want to tell Gillian. So he arrives at St. James a few days later where he's met by his colleague, Harry Shergold. And I said to Blake, you know, what, what did you feel at that moment? And he broke from Dutch into English and he said, I felt the game was up. And it is indeed Shergold says, Blake, there's a few things we need to discuss about your work in Berlin. And he walks him across St. James's Park to Cadogan Place, I think it is, where the main office is. And Blake realises they want to take me there so they can record the interrogation there. And your account of the interrogation, it's the most sort of caricature English thing imaginable. I mean, because we say interrogation and probably everyone has an image of a of a cellar of a sort of room and Blake's handcuffed to the wall. But in fact, it, it seemed to be very comfortable. They all had lunch breaks. He was allowed to go home and stay with his mother in the evening. So this is more of a sort of conversation uh, over a cup of tea, isn't it? Yeah, it's very Cambridge. I mean, um, Blake himself was struck by this. I saw one of the talks he gave to the Stasi, these German secret police in the 70s, and he, he describes this interrogation. You could see the Stasi officers thinking, well, that's not the way we do it here, mate. And yeah, yeah I mean, they, they sit around in this room for two, two, three days. I mean, he returns to his mother in the evenings in Radlett in Hertfordshire. They, the SIS do take the precaution of tailing him, perhaps because um, they recalled that Burgess and McLean had done a runner from the UK in 1951. Yeah, and he just denies, and he might have got away with denying because they didn't have evidence that would stand up in court, nor did they particularly want to go to court. But then on the third day, Shogold says, look, Blake, we know you were a KGB agent, but we understand uh, the North Koreans forced you to do it. They tortured you. They blackmailed you. And Blake is very affronted by this because he's proud of being an idealist. And he bursts out, nobody tortured me. Nobody blackmailed me. I decided to spy for the KGB of my own accord. And, you know, this is a famous interrogation, which has been shown to um, play to future generations of MI6 recruits over the years. The interrogators just sit there amazed because suddenly he's confessed and then he just keeps on confessing. I think, you know, because they were sort of colleagues and quite one of them was actually a friend of his, the interrogators, 
he felt, well, these are understanding people. And when you have this terrible secret, of course, it's, it's a great relief to tell your secret to people who understand, understand the context and who will listen sympathetically. And so they put him on trial. He's convicted and has an incredible 42-year prison sentence. The number of years is supposed to relate to the damage he had caused. So could you say a little bit about what was the conclusion of the the damage to Britain and and her intelligence interests caused by Blake? Well, I mean, the judge says every intelligence secret of Britain these last few years has essentially been handed over to the Soviet Union. I think the worst one was the betrayal of the Berlin spy tunnel, although actually since the Berlin spy tunnel still operated and the Soviets still talked authentically, that didn't do huge damage. The main damage he did was was human. He betrayed by his own reckoning several hundred agents working for the UK behind the Iron Curtain to the Soviets. Many of these people spent a long time in jail and SIS reckoned that about 40 of them disappeared, were executed. And so Chapman Pincher, who was the leading Fleet Street journalist of espionage at the time, gets George Brown, the then foreign secretary, to uh, spill the beans and say that 42 years represents about one year for every agent's life betrayed. You asked Blake, about whether he felt guilt in terms of what had happened. What what did he say to you when, when you were sitting there in his garden in Moscow? Well, I said, do you have regrets? And he said, I regret a lot. Uh, I lie awake at night thinking about my life. And I regret the pain I caused to my wife and my sons and to my colleagues. He felt actually very bad at having betrayed his you know colleagues whom he liked at MI6. But he always denied all his life, that the agents he betrayed had been hurt. And I think it was very important for him to live in denial over that. So he would say, I always told the KGB, you can protect the Soviet Union, but you mustn't hurt these people in any way. And I'm sure he did tell the KGB that. But I mean, he wasn't so naive as to believe um, that nothing would be done to these people. I mean, as the writer Alan Judd said, what did he think that was done to... um, you know, double agents caught by the KGB in the depths of the Cold War, did they get community service? No, I mean, of course, right. horribly treated, and many of them were killed. And Blake could have known this, but he chose not to, because I think because he was a kindly man at heart, he couldn't face that truth. And so he lived in denial about it all his life. We've got to what is the end of Blake's career as a spy for the KGB, but it's not the end of the story because he then made a remarkable escape from Wormwood Scrubs and managed to end up in Moscow, uh, where he lived a very long and, from your account in in the book and, and from your meeting with him, a fairly happy life. So could you say a little bit about how he escaped and also how he lived in Moscow? Yeah, so in 1966, he escapes from Wormwood Scrubs. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories uh, that MI6 helped him get out. And in fact, the KGB distrust Blake. You know, how on earth could, you know, this man who'd been given a 42-year jail sentence escape from jail must have had help from MI6. No such thing. Uh, in fact, he had befriended some prisoners on the inside. And when they were released, the Irish thief Sean Burke and the British peace activists Michael Randall and Pat Potter, when they were released, 
they helped him get out. So Burke throws this rope ladder made of knitting needles over the wall of Wormwood Scrubs one night. And Blake, who has got to the wall because a friendly burger on the inside has broken a window, just, um, you know, leaps down, breaks his wrist. Burke drives into a nearby bedsit. They spend a couple of months or so in Postles Flats in Hampstead. And then Randall and his wife and two sons take a family holiday in Berlin in a camper van. And a small compartment underneath the seats has been carved out in which Blake is hidden. And they get from Dover to Calais and then on to Berlin without really any problem. So it's a very amateurish escape. It's, um, you know, as Simon Gray says in his play about it, it's like something out of a cartoon book. And no, no KGB help, no MI6 help. But, I mean, this was a time, this is, you know, the final failure of the British establishment, having let Blake in, having let him do all this stuff, and then letting him escape. Uh, this was a time when it was quite easy to escape from British jails. I mean, you know, the great, a couple of great train robbers escaped. People were escaping all the time. So, yeah, and then he gets to Moscow, realizes within a week that communism doesn't work. I mean, Moscow in 1967 is not a very cheery place, <laughs> ramshackle. His ideal for which he's sacrificed, you know, being with his wife and sons, he's dedicated his life, turns out to be a complete fallacy. But he picks himself up. He's a very resilient guy, is Blake, speaks good Russian, loves Russia, and meets a Russian woman, has a son with her. You know, when I visited in 2012, I met her. They had a very long, I think, happy married life together. And at the end of his life, um, clearly communism hadn't happened. He he died in a Russia that is a sort of hyper-capitalist, autocratic um, dystopia. What what do you think, uh, you know, his sort of final conclusion would have been on that communist dream? Well, I know what it is, but he wasn't willing to talk to me about that because I'd been told that Blake really detested Putin. He hated that kind of cynical KGB robber capitalism. And yeah. his problem was that he got his dacha and he and his wife had their pensions from Putin, from the intelligence services, and he didn't want to offend Putin in any way. Putin was kind of his keeper. And Putin gave him, you know, order of Lenin when he turned 90 and so on. So he he gave me the interview on condition that I did not ask him about contemporary Russian politics because he didn't want to have to attack Putin or lie about it. But yes, he detested the, uh, the oddly, the kind of KGB regime by his fellow KGB alumnus. And I think what he did in his last 20 years or so after he'd, you know, seen what he saw as the light of Gorbachev and then the light of Yeltsin fail, you know, this promise of a more humane communism, he just withdrew from politics and ideals. And he found happiness in the bosom of his family with his wife, Ida, his son, Misha, and then his three British sons, who from the 1980s, to his great joy, had reconnected with him and begun visiting him from Britain. And, you know, he said to me, the greatest joy of my life is that I've had a second family while uh, reconnecting with my first one. And so, yeah, he withdrew into the private realm while he could still read. He became blind in his latter years, but while he could still read, he loved reading British and Russian literature. He'd listened to the BBC World Service and to classical music. So those were his pleasures. He became an apolitical and indeed somewhat cynical person at the end. Simon Cooper, thank you so much for talking to us about George Blake. Simon's book, The Happy Traitor, published by Profile Books, is available in good and I'm sure even bad bookshops. Thank you for joining me in the bunker, Simon. Thanks very much. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday 
with Start Your Week on Mondays and the main panel show on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker.